ethics, we need some. Today, we explore the role of ethics in our lives and in government. Beyond what's legal, what's ethical? Do we simply fake it till we make it? And what about personal integrity? Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank Falvey, host of A Journey Toward a More Perfect Union. This morning's topic, and we're not sure what directions it's going to go, is ethics. And with us today, Jeff Roy was the chair of the House Ethics Committee, co-chair, that never had a meeting. Am I right, Jeff? I'm grateful that we never had a meeting because the object of that committee was to pass judgment on one of your colleagues, which is probably one of the most difficult things to do. So the other good part of that is that nobody did anything unethical in that particular session. And we have Natalia Linus that I believe you must have had some sort of course on ethics in order to have your PhD in epidemiology. In epidemiology. Frank, I did not, we did not have to take a medical ethics course or even a history course, but I think more and more, you know, medical ethics is top of mind right now with COVID and who gets vaccines. So I can jump in on the the medical ethics part. And Michael Walker-Jones kind of taught a course that included covering ethics. Well, yes, not only uh, taught a course, but a series of courses that all included large segments of ethics in both labor relations, criminal justice, and corporate operations. Pete, have you had any experience in uh, formal experience in uh, radio ethics or, or broadcast ethics? Well, interesting you bring that up. There, there is that aspect of what is ethical with respect to broadcasting as a social franchise. Now, do I understand a lot about ethics? I guess the only thing I bring to the table this morning is perhaps a panoply of suspect examples, <laughs> but I don't know that you know I can opine with, with any gravitas or definitive outcome. I'll do my best. And what I'm doing right now is behaving in a very circumlutor- circumlocutory manner as I sort of amble on trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about and failing miserably. As long as you're doing with fine fettle. Uh, That's it. It's all about carry on. <laughs> I haven't heard the word ethics probably in 50 or 60 years. But if you go back 50 or, or 60 years, and I'm not sure you'll all agree that this is an ethical problem, but I used to kind of worry, why about fines? If I returned a library book, there was a monetary fine. If I had a parking ticket, right? there was a monetary fine. And it dawned on me that people that have lots and lots of money, which Mary Bassett last week brought up the disparity between wealth income and low income. To me, that ethical problem extends 
to fines. And I've always struggled. Why isn't there a better way than fining someone to correct a behavior that maybe not not be right? Credit cards drive me out of my mind in the sense that if you miss a payment by $5 or something, right, they're, they're going to fine you. And then if, if you don't pay the fine right away, it blossoms maybe to $250 or, or more. So to me, there's this ethical problem around fines. What is a better way? And let me bring an example. My wife has a handicap. A parking sticker. If that car is used inappropriately, there's a possibility of a loss of license. There's a possibility of a $500 fine. Now, if you inadvertently or on purpose park in a, in a handicapped area, the only fine for you is $250. So if $250 is like that example that I pointed about money, at what point would you pay for your wife auctioning off your favorite drink to either you or your neighbor? And that point is, at what point the money means more to you to not spend or the pleasure, okay, not worth the money you're going to pay? That's my example of fines. What's $250 if, if that is not a significant amount in your income. So ethically, how do we handle the problem? No, I think it all goes around to we have laws, we have rules, and how do we go about enforcing them? And the laws are designed uh, to make us act appropriately, uh, respect one another, and you know, you can't throw somebody in jail for you know, parking in a handicapped space or, or, you know, some other activity. So the law has come up with a way to hurt people in, in the pocketbook because everybody knows the concept of money. And so you, you hit them in the pocketbook and perhaps that'll get the message. Do I think that's the best way to do it? I think uh, your example, Frank, can be stretched further when you look at the bail laws and you set bail for people to hold them. In this country, we are, we are innocent until proven guilty, but a, a bail can be set to hold you in place while you await that trial to see if you're innocent or guilty. Uh, and for some people, a $1,000 cash bail means they're gonna stay locked up, whereas for a rich person, uh, you know, that's, that's pocket change. And, and they can get out, and that has led to uh, a lot of uh, the poorer folks, uh, you know, sitting in jails awaiting trials. I mean, there's certainly inequity there, and I can tell you that uh, in our criminal justice reform legislation that we did uh, last session, that was one of the things that uh, we revisited. But, you know, I would love to uh, say this, and it goes back to the federal Federalist Papers. And uh, James Madison had wrote, if men were angels, then we would not need government. And uh, unfortunately, we are not surrounded in this world by angels, and we need ways to curb behavior. And fines and imprisonment uh, are, are two of the, uh, the best ways we've come up with so far. And I would love to hear from my, my fellow panelists, if you got a better way, 
uh, let's talk about it. Well, interestingly enough, both of you hit on two things that I know during my teaching academic work at the university. We used an example of legal versus ethical. <clears throat> and the example was one where, uh, Frank, similarly, a, uh, a person uh, whose spouse is ill and needs some medicine. Uh, they go to the drugstore to get the medicine, and the medicine is priced at a point where this person cannot afford it. And so the person goes out of the drugstore, comes back with a gun, and demands the medicine in order to, because this is life-saving medicine for their spouse. Now, the question is, this person is admittedly committing a crime, but is what they're doing unethical? And the other corollary to that is the drugstore is selling the product. By selling the product at a price that many people can't afford, is that unethical and could it be illegal? So these questions start to drive our philosophy, not just as individuals, not just as our relationship with other individuals, but also as our society and what are our values. And that's where that nexus between legal and unethical is truly debated all over the place. Let me give you one other example. Uh, and it's one that, uh, like you, Frank, I am extremely concerned about. And that is that some of our municipalities and some of our state governments, and indeed, even the federal government, have laws that will, in essence, beg people to break. They're actually egging people on to break these laws so that they can then exponentially start to tap into that person's resources. I'll give you an example. If I have a parking fine in Ferguson, Missouri, and that parking fine uh, or that parking ticket was $10, and I don't get it adjudicated within 30 days, the parking fine then doubles after 30 days. So now it's $20. And if I don't handle it within 15 days after that, it doubles again. And now it's $40 and on and on and on. So after, let's say, six months, I'm up into uh, hundreds of dollars that I owe the town. And the town now can send out a warrant for my arrest in order to get the money, or they can try to uh, start proceedings to garnish either my insurance or my car. Is that legal? Yes, because the town of Ferguson set it up that way. Is it ethical? Ah, that's where the question really hits, because if it is unethical, then the question becomes, well, what is the legal framework then? How can you create laws that are unethical? Yeah, my students used to have the same reaction, which, <laughs> which is to sit in silence. Because it's not a question that we deal with on a regular basis. And, and, and I know all of us have an opinion about that. I want to add to that in terms of the list of 
examples before we jump into the, the question. It came up recently around vaccine eligibility, right? People were being, we had these very strict cutoffs. You know, you are a firefighter or an essential worker, you're over 75. But people have shown up to the hospital at 72. They're very sick. They're not yet eligible. They say, you know, I am really at risk. And the, the practitioner there has to make an ethical choice. They know that actually this person is uniquely positioned, and yet we have these rules. Is it unethical of them to decide to help this person who, you know, 72-year-olds vary. Some 72-year-olds are really healthy and energetic, and some are really in poor health. And, you know, how do you make these decisions? And, and where is it the law or the rule? Is it for, you know, I'm taking it from the perspective, are those put in place to also allow people to, like, relieve their guilt? Like, would you feel guilty not giving a life-saving treatment or something because it's out of your control? And does that, is, is that also why we have rules to, to enable the individual guilt or the individual conundrum to be taken out of our control? And that level of control as an individual, like, how should we be engaging in these conversations? So just adding complexity with real examples that are happening today. And of course, the ethics of vaccine equity is a big conversation right now. Should we be vaccinating our 12-year-olds who are unlikely to die when uh, people across the country and across the world, even healthcare providers don't have access to that? Is it ethical for us to give 12-year-olds vaccines? Like These are the questions that I'm really, really um, engaging with. So, so many questions, and I think it'll be hard to answer many of them. Now it's the beauty of, uh, of ethics. And uh, I will say, if you want to see this um, moral question or ethical question play out on a Hollywood screen. Uh, I invite you to uh, uh, look at the movie John Q starring uh, Denzel Washington. It was a 2002 movie. And uh, the, the father uh, had a son who was diagnosed with an enlarged heart and he found out that he was unable to get the transplant because his HMO uh, health insurer would not cover it. So he decides to uh, hold up the hospital at gunpoint and force them to do the surgery on his kid. Uh, and it really dramatizes ethical and moral dilemmas uh, that were laid out by you so perfectly uh, in this conversation. So that's, uh, that's some uh, holiday weekend uh, movie watching if you wanna take a peek. As another promotion for that movie, uh, Jeff, I'd like to say that Denzel Washington thought so highly of the script and he was so concerned about what the movie itself portrayed that he did that movie at the union minimum in terms of his salary. Uh, and that's an unknown part of that particular movie. It is absolutely, I agree with you, a very powerful example of the question that we're talking about. I would also add drama at that scale is obviously a big story that you know Denzel got behind uh, for all good reasons. Uh, going back to Natalia's point about people at the margins, in other words, 72, not doing well, et cetera, the person administering the vaccine at that point faces that at the, what could be considered an ethical choice. But this, this is where I think the word practical decisions have to be made, and they're not always according to the rules in the most specific way. The person who's, who's administering the vaccine is seated before someone who clearly is not a fit to the rule, but will benefit from getting the vaccine. So now we are considering doing something out of order. Here's a question. 
does it fit into the broad construct of a public good? In other words, the person benefits clearly, which means that the person won't have to come back later on to be vaccinated. And we've put another dose in another arm. It's a gain, whether it fits the rule or not in the most literal sense. And so, and then there's also the other practical issue of, well, do I just pass on this person and waste the time and move on to the next person and deal with the, the social implication and embarrassment of having to refuse someone? So in all of these tiny, tiny ways, which is the opposite of, of the drama of, of Denzel's script, in all of these tiny, tiny ways, uh, we make daily and weekly choices about what fits uh, as a practical matter. And, and so there's this gray area that gets interesting. Now, I, I want to spend a moment talking about a, one dramatic situation, which in the medical community does concern me. Years ago, working as someone in venture capital, I was asked to review a technology. The technology was touted as a way of correcting people's vision. It wasn't a keratotomy. It wasn't operating on the eye, but they had a machine and the machine used microwaves at a certain frequency to reshape uh, the corneal surface of the eye. Uh, it could be done once and the result would be permanent and your eye would be converted back to a smooth 2020 surface. Interesting. Then the people who were doing the presentation went on to say, we can also apply the technology in a way that it is temporary. We dial back the beneficial effect and people would then have to come back in and have their eyes uh, redone, say every six months or annually, thereby increasing our audience and our profit. At that point, I ended the conversation with a thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Have a great day. Because I felt that if they did not find a way to apply that technology in its highest, best, most efficient, and most beneficial use, we were not going to be interested in making that investment because that was clearly an ethical issue. You know, um, before we started the show, I actually went and looked up the definitions of the words ethics. And as we're this discussion is unfolding, it, you know, it comes back to me. And, you know, one of the definitions was the, the word ethics, and, and this is going to be uh, particular for Natalia, given where she's from. The, the word ethics is derived from the Greek word ethos, mm -hmm. from the Latin word mores, and together they combine to define how individuals choose to interact with one another. And that's really what we're talking about. How do we, as uh, people, uh, choose to treat one another? And, you know, what habits or characters or, or, or morals um, do we put in place to guide and develop a guiding philosophy for how we live our lives? I'm so curious, Natalia, given where you came from and... Um, you know, where these phrases get their origin, how you grew up and how you developed into the wonderful person that you are today. Is it, was that a part of your culture and upbringing? 
Hard question, uh, Jeff, because, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of who I am today is because of my immediate family or because of the Greek culture, the kind of notions of democracy and justice and, you know, political philosophy. And, you know, obviously a lot of the, the writings, ethical kind of thinking relies on is around political philosophy and all of that. But I also think that I, I grew up in a pretty religious household and I think religion is a place where moral kind of ethics and 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 judgment is is pretty strong. Uh, at times, it can be too strong. It can be too limiting. And and I think you know we've touched on this in other episodes around you know family and what we include. Um, it's interesting because ethics and morals and our norms around how we behave with one another are constantly changing. Um, and yet, at the heart of it is this idea of you know if you had this invisible cloak, you didn't know where you would be born. Uh, which country, which place, which era, what would you want the laws around you to be so that you would be in the best situation? So, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily be a woman or a black woman born, you know, 200 years ago in the U.S. because that would put you at a significant disadvantage. So thinking about we're born by chance into a family, into a country, and yet we allow all of these inequities um, to persist. You know, if I were born right now in a very poor country, um, as a woman, maybe with a disability, like what would be the structure? So kind of that that cloak of, I think it's called the cloak of invisibility. Like if you didn't know, what would you want the rules around you to be? Um, I think that's a useful framing around ethics, uh, around, you know, our laws, around what do we want our society to look like? And that wasn't a Greek philosopher. So I, I won't I won't claim all of the you know, the, the thinking uh, coming from, from ancient Greece, this was is a sort of a more modern, Michael seems to know more about this. So I'm going to let him jump in. <laughs> well, I was going to say that there is this, uh, uh, you know, your definition uh, between uh, the uh, Greek uh, ethos and the Latin mores uh, brings up one other issue. Uh, that is the nexus between morals and ethics which starts to move us into the philosophical piece around religions, because all of that deals with, again, how are we going to treat one another? Yet when we jump over to corporations, corporations are not necessarily religions. They're not necessarily people. So what is it that we expect in terms of ethics from our businesses? And here's where I throw out a challenge to you, Frank, because it seems to me that if you have not heard the word ethics in 50 years, the question is, have you dealt with ethics or ethical situations in the last 50 years? And I would propose to you that, yes, you have. Uh, and the question is, what's been your reaction as you have encountered decisions that have been made either by corporations in terms of how they deal with you or other individuals? I dealt with a situation within the last seven days that has knocked me off my feet and I am unable to recover from. So yes, over the last 50 or 60 years, I have dealt with ethical situations, one of which a truck driver for Nissan Baking Company in Connecticut stopped early in the morning, about one, two o'clock by the side of the road in a no parking zone, went across the street to Dunkin' Donuts and got a cup of coffee. Two women in a car that had been drinking all night in bars uh, hit the rear end of that truck. One died and one was crippled for life. What is the, the police only gave 
the truck driver a no-parking ticket? What is the ethical response of distant baking toward a punishment, or any, if any, to this driver? You know, you uh, raise a fascinating question that we face in law every single day, and that is the notion of causation, okay? I know that that truck was illegally packed, and no one's going to dispute with you whether that truck was illegally packed. The question comes down to the foreseeability of the event that you just described, and is the truck driver in parking illegally expected to foresee that intoxicated individuals will be driving on the road and may hit his vehicle. I would struggle to find the truck driver causally linked to that particular crash. And what we allow juries to do when they're considering fact patterns like you laid out, they are allowed to weigh and measure the relative negligence of each of the parties. And they are to assign a percentage of responsibility in a particular situation to add up to 100%. So a jury would look at the facts that you laid out and say, yeah, I think the truck driver bears some responsibility. I'm going to assign 10% of that responsibility because if the truck wasn't there, they wouldn't have hit the truck. But I'm also going to look and say, well, the people were intoxicated. They were violating the law by taking to the road uh, impaired. So I'm going to assign 90% of the responsibility to those folks. And there you've got 100% responsibility. There is, there is a, a method and a means for um, assigning responsibility. But I can't say in my mind from a principle of, of law and ethics that that truck driver is responsible for the death or the injury for uh, that particular person. Others may not share my view, and that's why you have a jury of 12 people to hash this out, but that's my thought. I also think that you know, the nature of the no parking zone is probably something the jury would consider, and I think, Jeff, to your point, Proximal causation is really at the center of so many of these discussions. It's huge, and it's a big part of law, um, particularly in civil cases. Um, the, the notion that the truck driver made a choice, armed with knowledge that that was not the place to put the truck. The women in the car made choice, armed with the knowledge that driving while intoxicated is not a good thing. And that's the starting gate for figuring out how it is that you divide up the responsibility. So just uh, that's a fascinating discussion, which opens up myriad cases for review by juries. And but, it's, you know, it, some of them are a Gordian knot, some of them are Solomonic, but it's, it's a great area of, of, of learning. Let me point out, in the civil case, it was 90% the other way. 90% they found Nissan Baking Company at fault and found a huge sum of money awarded both to the person that de deceased and particularly to the person that was crippled for life because there was the deep pockets. Is that a real case? Yes. Wow. 
it, it you, was you, an ambassador. You, you, you asked me my experience. I am an official with Nissan Baking Company. I was sent down that morning to in, in, uh, kind of ascertain the facts. Our labor relations person said, all we can do, because all he, you know, he was represented by the Teamsters, the labor relations person said, all we can do, right, is cite him for a no parking ticket. Three months later on Dexter Street in Central Falls, Rhode Island, I'm following one of our tractor trailers. He pulls over to the side of the road in a no parking zone, starts to go and dunk a donuts. I'm behind him. I get out of the car and I tell him to get back in the truck. He said, why? I said, you're in a no parking zone again. He sent a letter of reprimand. Another three months go by. He pulls out of Nissan baking loading zone. He didn't close the doors. All the racks fell out of the truck. And finally, he was dismissed from the company. Real honest. Yes. Have I faced ethical issues? Yeah. I mean, as we all have in some manner or other, we have to make those decisions. Why, in my original point about fines, why shouldn't the punishment be some sort of service that would be equal to the rich and the poor? Some, maybe they have to do something for the government or a nonprofit. Why isn't some way time is equal, whether you're poor or you're rich? Why not impose some sort of fine that involves I'm, I'm just going to jump in quickly because we covered this in a private, uh, a previous show that uh, we, we do not uh, engage in involuntary servitude uh, as, as a punishment. And that, uh, that I know we had a lengthy conversation on that. And it's a real tough thing. I mean, to, to force somebody to engage in the service of another uh, to pay a penalty uh, led to some real serious problems in this country following, uh, following the Civil War. And uh, I'll leave it at that because I'm sure that my, uh, my friends here on the panel will, uh, will cover it much better than I can. I have a couple things to jump in. Time, I think also beyond what, what Jeff is talking about, time isn't really uh, equally distributed to, we know that women uh, who have kind of both the work in the workplace and work at home have much less, you know, at the UN, we used to call it time poverty, actually, that you don't have three hours to cook a really healthy meal if you are working two jobs, rushing home on public transportation, getting home five minutes before. So time isn't, I wanted to just clarify, time isn't equal lease um, between us. But Frank, I completely agree with you that it's unfair that for, you know, a library fine, I, you know, I have library fines. I don't even consider them because they're minimal as compared to my budget. But if I were living beyond the, like right at the poverty line or under the poverty line, it would be huge. So I do wonder if we have a model of fines being a percentage of your income or something like that, you know, 0.1% of your income. And it's not a set number that would be, you know, disproportionate. And, you know, to that point, and we haven't talked about it explicitly, restorative justice is, is a notion that I think worth our conversation here. You know, why are we punishing people? Are we punishing them? You know, we can't, if somebody loses their life, for example, in an accident, you can't get that person back. And why do we punish? You know, if somebody has been in an accident and they have been disabled, you want that financial compensation in order to make up the fact that they 
will not be able to live or work or make as much income. If they die, it's often for you know the family to feel like their their hurt is being compensated. But this notion of restorative justice, of having the two parties coming together and engaging in what is the fair punishment, I think is a model that I would hope our country would move towards. Um, if I were in a situation where I accidentally caused the death of someone, I think that would eat me to a point, like the punishment would be the self-punishment, right? So being able to have that conversation with the person's family um, and finding a solution that seems to work would also be good for the person, the perpetrator. So I don't know, I wonder if our ethics and our ethical conversation needs to move in that direction around what is the actual purpose of punishment? Um, well, some of that too is dependent upon the ethical uh, deviation, if you will. For example, how do you determine that a corporation, uh, when it violates its ethical platform or premises, uh, you know, how do you decide a punishment for a corporation? Now, in the legal sense, uh, I think as Jeff has pointed out, that becomes a little more formulaic. But in some instances, and I'm going to give it, I'm going to give an example of a company that tries to avoid ethical and moral conflicts in its customer relations. And it's a company that I love to refer to. It's one that I used to use as an example, uh, again, in my teaching, and that's Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines, for example, has authorized every single one of their employees right down to the baggage handlers to make decisions on the spot. In other words, if I were to have lost a bag and there was something extremely valuable in that bag for me, like my medications, uh, the baggage person, uh, when I go and report that, uh, according to the company, can do a number of things, including stopping right there and trying to help me to get some emergency medications. And I've seen Southwest baggage handlers do something very similar to that or to provide a, a, uh, a voucher to go and get some emergency clothes. I've seen Southwest handlers do that. Or if you are trying to get to a particular uh, family event or special event, uh, I've seen some of the ticket agents to waive some of the some of the rules with regard to moving you from one flight to another, especially on the day of your flight, and Southwest is has been really well known for that. That's part of their sort of ethical framework as a company. And just as a, a means for our listeners to know, uh, there are seven basic ethical principles uh, that I used to teach for corporations: honesty, integrity promise keeping and trustworthiness, uh, loyalty, fairness, uh, concern for others, respect for others, uh, and law abiding. Uh, and those seven principles, especially for the executives in the country, uh, I think we have seen incidences where companies either don't want to or ignore those principles without very much in terms of repercussions. So when you move from the legal to the corporate, to the individual. I think there are, uh, and I want to go back to the, something that was expressed earlier as a personal example to add a little levity to this. When you were adding, uh, uh, when you were talking about the vaccine, Natalia, uh, I happen to resemble that remark of 
<laughs> of a person who shows up uh, who's not part of the eligible at the moment uh, and uh, sort of pleaded my case to the people who were taking the, the identification of those who were eligible. And I didn't have the identification, but I made my case that, hey, I'm vulnerable and I really would like to get the medication now, get the vaccine now. Uh, and the people in charge said, you know what, we're not going to hold you up. Okay, you're not eligible. So just go to the next step and let's see what they say. But also be aware. And here's what they told me. Be aware at any step in this process, someone could challenge this and say, get out of here. Okay, because you're not eligible at this moment. But I went through the entire plea piece. No one challenged me. I got the vaccination, even though at the moment I wasn't eligible. You probably caused some of those people to feel that ethical dilemma. You, you increased their stress, but they were right in many ways, Michael. You know, we know from the data that Black Americans have been dying not only at much higher rates, but at much younger ages. So uh, age cutoff is, by definition, inequitable for Black Latinx and indigenous communities that have been dying, you know, the av the risk of dying of COVID uh, is the same if you're 85 plus and white and 65 plus and black or Latinx. So unfortunately, I think for, for you know, the committees trying to create those rules, it was complicated to say, you know, we would have a different cutoff for different racial groups that doesn't, you know, we know that race isn't biological and therefore uh, it seemed you know, wrong, but but I think that that flexibility is really important. Since we're being a little light here, can I also jump in to correct myself? The cloak of, of invisibility that I talked about before is actually a Harry Potter reference. What Rawls talked about is the veil of ignorance. I apologize. It's like a, an image, a mental image. The veil of ignorance was what I was talking about, this idea of where you're born. Not, not my Harry Potter reference. Sorry, guys. That's okay. The veil of ignorance is still operative for me to this very day. Well, I want to throw another curveball at you. And this is um, an ethical piece that um, I was reading The Globe back in January, and I was in the process of uh, determining which bills I was going to file for this particular session. Uh, the deadline for bill filing was early February. And I, was, I picked up The Globe, and I read about uh, this family from uh, Eastern Massachusetts who uh, had gotten behind on their uh, taxes uh, on their home, their property taxes. There was no mortgage on the home, uh, but you know they, they were behind by about $4,000 on their property taxes. They claimed they didn't get notice from uh, the town, um, but the town slapped a lien on the property. And in Massachusetts, those liens can be purchased by a private company. And a private company actually purchased that lien and became the owner of the property. So for a $4,000 bill, they became the owner of a property that was worth over $300,000, and they got the, the virtue of that equity. So uh, at one point, they sent the sheriff to the home to knock on the door and said to the folks, you know, they said, who are you? And they said, well, we're the owners of the property. You have to leave. And it, uh, it, ended up being a, a story that the, the Globe ran on the front page and uh, a law firm was hired. They came in to do the work pro bono. And uh, I was reading this and I was saying to myself, how in the world can the law allow people to be thrown out of their homes for uh, failing to pay uh, a $4,000 bill? And that led me to filing a bill 
that requires due process in these situations, requires uh, the folks to get an opportunity for, uh, for a hearing, and kind of uh, removes that incentive for private folks to jump in and get uh, equity. I, I felt that the equity should be turned over to the people who own the home. And if you're going to remove them, you can recoup your $4,000, but you're not going to get a windfall of $300,000. Uh, that bill is, is pending right now, but it, you know, it raises a lot of ethical questions. First of all, you know, uh, our obligation and duty to pay our taxes and to contribute to the overall good of the community and, and pay for police and fire and schools and all other uh, activities in our communities. Yes, that's an obligation. Uh, if you fail to pay that, though, should you be subject to losing your home? I, I think that truly crossed the line for me. And, uh, you know, I, I called up the lawyers in the case and said, you know, tell me, you know, what, what we need uh, in legislation to correct this so that no other family faces this ethical dilemma and gross inequity uh, and uh, haven't gotten a hearing on the bill yet, but that's a real, real tough issue out there. And I'd love to hear what you folks think about it. Well, I can, I can speak to that one with some experience, actually. Uh, I moved from a home in South Natick to where I live now. I sold my home to a buyer, willing buyer, willing seller, normal conclusion. 18 months goes by. I am noticed about not paying my real estate taxes on the house in Natick. Notices were put in the paper according to laws regarding tax lien certificates in Massachusetts. So, what year is this? Um, this was, I'm going to say, about 10 years ago. No, more than it was about 14 years ago. And I only ask because you said notices went in the newspaper. And that's correct. That's another issue because nobody reads print newspapers anymore. Right. That's why. But, uh, the law at that time stated a couple of interesting things. Number one, there needed to be three notices in the newspaper. Also at that time, in the off chance that a tax lien certificate was issued, the owner of the home would have a six-month window of opportunity in land court to make the corrections and apply the tax to the new owner of the home along with 14% interest. Anyway, since I was deemed the owner of the home for some reason, I went right down to Natick Town Hall and I said, I have a check for $8,000, which is the money's owed on the Natick property. I want the tax lien certificate in my hand now. Because under the law, if you presented all the funds, the town then had to issue a TLC. The clerk got very flustered, said, uh, well, the person who handles this is not here right now. Can you come back this afternoon? I said, well, this is my check. I'm presenting it to you now. See the check. I will be back this afternoon and we will complete the transaction. I went back at 2 p.m. The tax had been paid by the current owner of the home. Somebody made some calls. So I thought that was a fascinating exchange. Meanwhile, in the next town over in Dover, the town does not issue TLCs. The town takes the home itself and auctions it off. The town holds the TLC locally and uses it as a revenue generator. Meanwhile, in the other next town over in Wellesley, 
the TLCs are freely available and the clerk of the town will actually provide you with a complete list of homes that are in default. Take your pick. Write the check. So I think since that time, again, going back 14, 15 years, I think that the way that the towns have handled TLCs has been harmonized. And I don't know any more than that because I haven't looked at it recently. But it was an interesting foray into uh, that aspect of the law. Well, I want to share with you, while you were talking, Pete, a pop-up popped up on my screen. And it's a media inquiry from a reporter at the Standard Times in New Bedford. And she says, I'm working on a story about a local family that is suing Dartmouth and a company for taking their property and equity due to unpaid taxes. Can you give me a call about the bill you filed, House 3053? I'm not joking when I say that just flashed up on my screen. So, yes, it's still going on. You heard it here, folks. Late breaking news. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this goes back to that point uh, that I was trying to express earlier around certain laws that generate income for the municipality or for the state or for the uh, or for the government you know i think there is a need for some review of these and i applaud you jeff for uh looking into this one uh and there are others so the question becomes ethically so let's move from now the you know the corporation and let's stay with the government for a second what's the government's role in terms of one policing ethics uh, that is of corporations and of individuals and policing itself, which goes, I think, to your point, Frank, around fines. Uh, You know, there is a belief that the government can also promote unethical behavior, uh, even on its own part. Long pause there for all of the things we're thinking about in the current situation in Congress. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Look, we are faced with these ethical dilemmas every single day of our lives. And uh, Frank, I had no idea that you were involved in that type of work uh, for the Nissan Bread Company. And uh, no, the, no, the type of work I was involved with was as a plant controller. I was involved oh, in the control. financial. I was involved in the uh, administration of the office and financial. So what were you doing following that truck? The uh, plant manager said, Frank, get in your car right now and go down and find out what the facts are. (laughs) It's it's interesting. You threw that one out there and, you know, some additional facts were involved. It it sounded like this guy had a pattern of practice of engaging in this type of behavior. And had I known that uh, this was his pattern of practice and uh, he had been warned not to do this, certainly would have swayed me uh, to go back. It, it uh, was after the fact. Oh, it was after the fact. After the okay. fact that the other reasons happened. I'm puzzled why that jury found 90% the other way, but hey, look at Oh, it's very they, clear. They, they the lady them. was crippled. She has medical expenses. And who has the deep pockets? Yeah, who I has know. the deep pockets? It's very, very clear. Yeah. One of the ethical things that that concern me is at times, I believe government officials are more interested in the letter of the law than in trying to practically find a solution to like the problems we, we just talked about on, on the uh, 
uh, tax levies. It seems like the uh, assessor's office and and uh, I'm more interested in, in not finding a fair assessment or trying to find a fair solution to to problems that people have reached a point that ethics doesn't matter. You can, in Congress, if you're a congressperson, you can say any lie that exists and there's no ethical consequences. Talk about the filibuster. I mean, I grew up when the filibuster was the savior of of bills. You had to have the filibuster so people could talk for hours and point out what is wrong with this bill. Today, progressives seem to want to do away with the filibuster so that the majority of people can have whatever way they want. I'm not sure the Constitution and the founders always were kind of scared of the majority of people. They wanted checks and balances. We don't seem to have approached a point in our government uh, that we want to find honest goodness, practical solutions and handle handle cases. We want to strictly uh, go by whatever is on the books. You know, Frank, I would, I would, I would sort of point out two things. One, the filibuster is not a part of the Constitution. No, um, it's not. But it's and, the rules of the Senate for years. But it was a construct that was created on, uh, let's talk about the creation of the filibuster, which was around the issue uh, of civil rights. And it was a way for the minority to impose its will upon the majority by not allowing those issues to come forth or to be voted on in a pure majority rule sense. And the second part of that is one that I keep, I keep now uh, moving more and more toward the idea that the other piece of the filibuster is around this idea that we have a two-party system which means that there is a minority and a majority, which keeps flip-flopping from time to time. And I think, again, this construct, which is not part of the Constitution, was not envisioned by some of the founders as helpful. This party system is part of the issue that brings us to uh, a filibuster or the rule of the majority over the minority and giving minorities certain kinds of rights inside of the Senate. It seems to have worked fairly well in the house to have just a majority rule and that could be because the you know because the house is closer to the people but i'm i don't buy at all the issue that the filibuster needs to stay nor is it a i think reasonable or rational piece of uh, regulation inside the senate or there are rules at this point that ought to stay uh, i think the filibuster needs to go and let's see where the majority rule inside the senate leads us well you will say that concept drives me nuts And there are many, uh, I'm not going to say many, there are some bad apples among politicians, just like there are bad apples in every field. And uh, the few bad apples who make some real egregious lies and misrepresentations really give us all a bad name. But I I will say, having served in the legislature uh, for nine years and in local government for 14 years, I've always been impressed with the level of uh, morality and integrity uh, many of my colleagues were. It was easy to identify those who you didn't want to walk with 
um, because they they didn't you know have that moral character. But uh, the larger majority of people were were great people there for the right reasons and doing the right thing. And I want to root out those bad apples as much as as you do, uh, because they they just do a, such a disservice to uh, government. Government has the the ability to do such great things, and people lose respect for it when they see people like that uh, denigrating uh, the office. So um, I just thought it would be helpful and, to point that then out. Why, then why should we permit to continue to have a law that elected officials have to take an ethics test? And the law was only passed to kind of calm the public down because of the bad behavior of a few people. The only purpose of the law was to rest assure that the, that the government was doing something significant curb the behavior. Well, in my opinion, that law has not curbed one person's behavior, and the threat of $100 fine a day for an elected official is unconscionable. Because why should we pass any law? Pass a law that if an elected official didn't wear a red hat, they're going to be fined a dollar a day? Pass an official, a law that if an official representative breaks any law, then they're going to be fined $500, including a jaywalking law that has a fine of $1? Why in the world should constitutionally any elected official be subject to a fine because of the law. You no, know, uh, Frank, I remember paying a $25 fine because I filed my um, office of campaign finance report one second late. One second. You know, we were logging on to the computer uh, before midnight, but there were a number of delays that caused the report to be filed one second after midnight. And I remember talking to the executive director of the, uh, the ethics board, the OCPF board, and I said, are you really going to fine me $25 for being one second late? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, boy, I said, uh, just doesn't seem right to me. And he said, well, you shouldn't have waited till 1150 to file your report. I said, well, I suppose you're right. I said, but one second really drives me crazy when I see some of the egregious violations that people get away with and nobody does anything. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, I'll waive the fine if you want, uh, you know, but you have to send me a request in writing and state the reasons why you want it. I said, I'm not going to do that. It's cheaper for me to pay you $25 then waste all that time. I said, you'll get your check for $25, and I hope you spend it wisely and enjoy every penny of it. But, uh, you know, I just want to point out to you uh, how frivolous I think this whole situation is, and I'm wasting time even talking about it on this program. But, <laughs> hey, look, it, uh, uh, it still sits with me. It happened eight years ago, but it still sits there in my mind. <laughs> we, need a, we need a program on pet peeves. Or things that right cost. <laughs> oh, that's. I think eight, that would that, be amazing. Yes. Yeah. That, that, yeah that's, an, that's an eight-hour special right there. Sorry. It is. It is. <laughs> Pete, I think we're winding down on time. Is that correct? Yes, I think that is, in fact, legally, ethically, and morally correct. Just putting that out there. <laughs>
Well, then I suggest you wrap up the uh, legal closing and statements that we we like to adhere to ethically to, to this program. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you have any opinion that you would like to share with us on any program, this program on More Perfect Union, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at info, info at franklin.tv. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think. For Frank and our roundtable, Dr. Mike, Dr. Natalia, and Representative Jeff Roy, thank you all for joining us today. And I'm Peter J. This is Franklin Public Radio.